Genesis 15, 7-18. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Good morning. It is uh, good to be together again in this way. Let's uh, open up in prayer before I get into the message. God, as we um, gather again in this way, I pray that your spirit will be felt, your words will be heard, your truth will be understood. As, uh, as I speak, I pray that I'll be a faithful messenger, um, that I will speak uh, inspired by, focused on you. Uh, and your truth that that I will be able to get out of the way um, and allow your words to be heard as we go through this, that this will be a journey that we can walk together as a congregation as we explore what you have to teach us through the story of Abraham uh, and specifically through this encounter in Genesis 15. In your name, amen. Before we uh, get into Abraham's story, before we get into that kind of strange uh, passage of scripture that Julia read for us. Uh, I want to say, I've said it before, I'm going to say it over and over again. It's it's sort of a, a personal thing that I'm passionate about is that I believe um, that God loves our questions, that he loves our curiosity, that he loves our digging and our wondering um, and our exploring. And as we connect with God in various ways, but especially I'm focused on maybe when we read the Bible, there is so much in there. Uh, and maybe this passage is an example of something that can be uh, confusing or doesn't immediately make sense or doesn't click. Um, and one of the ways that we can be blessed most through our Bible reading through uh, engaging with Scripture is is maybe by be, being willing to prayerfully ask good questions to go why did this detail get included or what why did this person react um, this way in this situation or why did God choose to show up in this form to this person uh, or what's going on here about this ancient ritual that I maybe don't understand or how would this person have been feeling about this these sorts of questions. Uh, and this is a little bit personally just kind of how I am wired and what gets me excited. But there's nothing that I love more than coming up with 
uh, or coming up against something uh, that I don't necessarily understand and getting to put in a little bit of work, um, uh, a little bit of, of sweat and elbow grease and, and, and wrestling with or digging into um, this thing, maybe doing some research and wondering and praying. And then all of a sudden having these moments that come so often in that place, these, these moments where things suddenly click uh, into place. And I especially love it uh, when, as it so often happens, what, what, what those moments do is draw me in to the larger plan that God has, draw me into this sense of who God is uh, throughout all of Scripture, the, 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 the way in which God is consistent and the way in which the Bible itself is connected and comes together in this beautiful way. Um, it continues to astonish and amaze me as I, as I wrestle with and, and, and find those moments uh, throughout Scripture. There is a quote from Mark Twain uh, that says that the best cure for Christianity is reading the Bible. Um, and what he's getting at is that, is that if we as Christians would actually pay attention to what we were reading... Uh, we wouldn't be Christians anymore because we, the, the, the Bible is a mess. It's full of contradictions and confusing moments and, and an angry, wrathful God and all these sorts of things. And, and so we would drop our faith if we actually read the Bible. Um, but, but, but these aha moments, this wrestling and engaging, um, to me, show that exactly the opposite is true. If we really read, if we devotionally engage with and are willing to um, approach those sections of scripture which are most confusing or most off-putting with an open mind uh, over and over again what I see is that we get opened up, we can see the fingerprint of God, we can see um, the heartbeat of God that beats throughout all of scripture um, that we find the gospel, that we find the good news showing up in the most unexpected places and in the most unexpected ways it's a beautiful thing when it happens uh, when you have those moments. So without getting ahead of myself too much, this passage in Genesis that we're going through today is one of those that just really never quite clicked for me, never made sense for me. It's one of those moments that felt a little bit um, impenetrable, that you, that you, it, it, inaccessible, that you can't really get to it, where you feel the cultural differences. You go, probably there's something significant happening here, but uh, I have no idea what's going on. So you just kind of shake your head and move on to things uh, that make more sense uh, or are more clear. Uh, but this week I had an aha moment. I had a moment where things sort of snapped into place in a supernatural way uh, with this passage, something that previously I might have just skipped over, something that I've certainly never preached on before, uh, has become for me over this, over this time uh, maybe one of the most significant passages in all of Scripture. It's a beautiful thing. Um, does it sound like I'm overselling it a little bit? Maybe, uh, maybe I'm starting things off like this just to make sure that you don't get distracted and wander off somewhere else on, on, on Facebook. Maybe I'm using this as a cheap trick just to keep you focused so that you stick around uh, to the end. And maybe in a half hour you're going to be disappointed when you find out it was, it was uh, a false beginning, that it wasn't really as exciting as I made it out to be. Or maybe I'm telling the truth about my journey this week. And maybe as you walk through this with me, maybe over this next little bit, uh, this bizarre encounter with God is going to open up for you in the way that it did for me. And you're going to walk out of here or you're going to close your computers um, with the Holy Spirit blazing inside of you with a renewed um, joy or vision or understanding of who God is and how he shows up and what he's been planning and doing and working 
in us and through us and for us from the very beginning. So you'll have to stay tuned to find out. Who knows? Um, this week, we are, of course, continuing our Promises of God series. And so maybe what I'll do uh, before we get any further is just uh, do a quick refresh of what we've covered so far. So a few weeks ago, I started off this series talking about Gideon. And Gideon, who was, you know, a little bit clueless and a little bit dense and a little bit selfish and a little bit afraid, um, makes him a very relatable guy. And he had some very relatable questions about his own safety, about his own doubts, about his weakness. But God graciously and uh, generously answers those questions. He meets Gideon where he's at and he reassures Gideon that things are in God's hands, that the battle is going to be won on God's strength, that he can rely on God's grace and protection and that Gideon has everything he needs uh, to be victorious. And two weeks ago, Pastor Darren spoke on Noah, on the promises that God gave to Noah during a, a very dark time, during a period of isolation and a period of global crisis. Again, a very relatable thing uh, for us in this current situation. God's promise to uh, save us, Darren talked about, his promise to remember us. And that might have been my my favorite out of the... Uh, out of the message, I especially like that. This idea that God isn't detached or thinking about something else. Uh, he remembers us. He's thinking about us. He's aware of what's going on. And it's a powerful thing to grab onto. He understands. He gets it. Um, and he is, he is uh, we are on his mind. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, Darren also reminded us that God loves our worship. Our worship has value to him. Um, it's, it's a valuable thing and a beautiful thing to God. And, uh, of course, we believe that's true even when our worship looks different uh, than it normally does. Um, but the fourth promise is this, that he would sustain the earth, that he's not going to, again, let a flood uh, or other sort of crises overtake us, that he has got it under control um, and that he is a sustaining and protecting God. Uh, and he, of course, is building towards ultimate restoration uh, as he completes his good and perfect plans for us. Last week was Easter, and uh, we took a break from the Old Testament. We had a guest speaker in, uh, Leighton Friesen, our conference pastor, spoke to us, gave us a message on Jesus going on ahead. Uh, and here, of course, we see another promise of God, the promise found in the resurrection, the promise of God's control and mastery over sin and death, the promise and hope of our eternal life as we follow a God who goes on ahead, who has claimed the prize for us. And today... We are going to be looking at the grandfather of all promises, and that is God's covenant with Abraham, the grandfather of our faith. Uh, actually, more than just ours, Abraham is the, the, the patriarch, or uh, the genesis, if you will, um, of three of the world's largest religions. Judaism and Christianity and Islam all look to Abraham as the founding father of their faith in many ways. And it is because of this covenant that we find in his story, the promises that God makes Abraham. So several years ago, uh, Walter Cruz spoke in our church and he talked about this covenant and he referred to it as the, uh, the, the hinge on which the rest of the Bible swings. It is this pivot point in scripture that affects everything that comes after it. Uh, I've also read the analogy that it's the starting point of, of threads of promise that runs so deeply uh, throughout Scripture that if you pulled on any of these threads of promise that Abraham receives, 
uh, you would see the uh, ripple effect you would see unraveling throughout uh, all of both the Old and the New Testament. This covenant is a hugely significant lens through which the rest of the Bible snaps into focus and can be seen more clearly. It sets the narrative stakes and the goals and the path forward from here. So uh, let's just back up a little bit and do kind of a flyover, sort of a run from 30,000 feet over the first 11 or so chapters of Genesis. So God creates Adam and Eve in the garden with the intention of being an open and unfiltered and intimate relationship with humankind who are created in free will uh, with with free will uh, and in God's own image. And Adam and Eve, of course, uh, famously fail at this. They, they eat the, the, the fruit. They break the relationship by choosing their own way instead of God's. Uh, and every human since then, including you and me, has in their own way done the same. Uh, that original sin has been repeated over and over again through each of us. And by the time we get to Noah, uh, there's this horrible verse in chapter 6, verse 5, where the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So that's a shocking statement that God himself, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, looked down and said, I've made a mistake here. This was not the right choice. I regret this. And he hits the reset button with a flood. He picks the best of the worst, uh, Noah and his family, and starts over. But of course, that's only a band-aid on an infected uh, wound, really, um, immediately after the story of Noah, what we see is the world lapsing back in to wickedness and selfishness with the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, this attempt, again, to be self-sufficient, to make a name for ourselves, uh, to supersede or override God's will for us. And God then separates the nations. He divides people by language. He scatters them over the face of the earth. And into the story steps Abraham. God's plan A has clearly failed. People are not going to be able to hold up their end of the deal. And so God intervenes. He steps in and he calls Abraham. Well, at this point in the story, he's Abram. And, and he says, leave behind everything that you know. Chapter 12, uh, verse 1, there's this call on Abraham that gets more and more difficult the further you get into the voice or into the verse. The Lord says to Abraham, go uh, from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. First, leave your country. Uh, then, a little more personal, leave your people, leave your community or your cultural group. And then third, leave your own family. Leave behind everything that is owed to you, your birthright, everything that you know, uh, and, and follow me. Follow me into the land that I will show you. Put down your nets and follow me, God says to Abram, not uh, for the last time. And uh, with this call, God gives a promise, a covenant that will be repeated over and over again through the next chapters. And then that run, as we said, through the fabric of the rest of Scripture. This is what God says. Um, he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So 
What's significant here, what I want you to get about this, what I want you to grab from this blessing, um, is that sometimes if you don't read it very carefully, it gets a little bit nationalistic or a little bit closed or the sense in which Israel or Abram's people have been elevated in a way they're more important or more special uh, than the rest of the world. And it's certainly true that God works in a special and direct way through the Israelites, through Abraham's descendants. Uh, And there's also no question that... um, Part of this promise was about establishing the place for them to be. But if that's where you're focused, if that's where you're thinking, uh, then you're missing the main point. I think the, the, the more than blessing Abram and his descendants, God intended to use Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing uh, for the entire world. Uh, one commentator on Paul talks about uh, Paul reading this covenant and says, when Paul reads the Abrahamic covenant, What he hears is the Great Commission. When Paul reads this covenant, what he hears is go to all the nations, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a sending covenant that is designed from its very beginnings to be for the whole world. So that's a bit of an introduction to this covenant uh, that God makes with Abraham. And it's a funny thing how sermon preparation goes. When I decided to look at Abraham... I thought what we would do is park here on this promise, that we'd spend our time working through sort of the points or the distinctions or what this covenant has to say about God's promises to us. But as I studied and prayed, I landed up over and over again in Genesis 15, in this passage that Julia read for us. Um, And so I decided that instead of digging into the actual covenant itself, what I want to focus on today is the way that God shows up here. Um, There are several famous passages in the Bible uh, that speak of God's presence coming to man. And all of them are incredible and wild uh, and sort of weird. God never shows up in a normal standard way. And it seems like he doesn't really show up in the same way twice. He appears in a burning bush uh, to Moses, of course. He wrestles with Jacob. He comes to Elijah, not in the fire, um, or in the wind or the earthquake, but in a gentle whisper. He walks past Moses on Mount Sinai while Moses is kind of hidden uh, in this cleft of the rock. And there are all these incredible ways in which God shows up to people. But this story in Genesis 15 has kind of been overlooked a little bit, maybe, in the ways that God appears. It doesn't hold the same status or awareness in our minds. And it makes sense. It is a weird weird story. It's it's the kind of story that people read and, and say, all right, I'm sticking with the New Testament for my Bible reading because it's confusing and it's maybe even a little bit off-putting and it's certainly hard to understand from our perspective. But I've uh, become convinced, um, and, and one of the real keys for this for me was there is a sermon, a 25-year-old sermon uh, from Tim Keller. Um, he is an author and, uh, and pastor and preacher, speaker out of uh, New York. Um, that I stumbled across. And it's gotten me so excited about what God is doing here in this moment. I'm convinced that this is one of the most powerful expressions of the gospel uh, that you can find anywhere in Scripture. And I'm talking about the whole Bible, including the New Testament. It is a powerful, powerful expression of the gospel. Um, so what we're going to do is is go through this chapter, chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15, Uh, Not verse by verse, but we'll bounce through a couple of key moments on our way to this appearance by God. So the chapter begins with God speaking to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid. So then we ask, 
what would Abram have to be afraid of? Uh, but looking at his life, you can understand why God showing up would cause his pulse to quicken a little bit. God's promises uh, and the way that he leads Abram through his life and the things that he asks of Abram when he's talking to him are difficult, tough things. Um, I heard one uh, speaker sum it up like this, sum up the story of God's interactions with Abram in this way. Uh, God says, Abram, I'm going to send you out. And Abram asks, where? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just go. And then God says, Abram, I'm going to give you land. And Abram says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just wander. And then Abram says, God, or sorry, God says, Abram, I'm going to give you a child. And Abram and, and Sarah, who are old, ask, how? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just wait. And then later, once Abram and Sarah have their child, God says, Abraham, kill your child. And Abram asks, why? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just walk up the mountain. And, and, and so here in verse 6, uh, in chapter 15, verse 6, um, we see something really important. It says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram's great triumph in life. The reason Abram is the giant of faith um, that we see in the Bible is because he was able to trust in God despite all this uncertainty. It's not that hard to believe in God, but it can be incredibly difficult to believe God, to believe the Lord. And we've talked before about that, that every sin or issue that we have fundamentally springs up from not fully believing, not fully trusting that God has our best interests at heart. Abram believed. Abram followed, no matter where God led. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, in Hebrews, uh, they refer, the author refers back to this moment. In Hebrews 6, uh, verse 17, in that Bible verse, uh, is kind of, this is leading into the Bible verses that I sent out uh, for memorization. The author refers back to this chapter, and he says, Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Abram's anchor was in God. He was anchored deep. He was fastened to the rock which cannot move. And then uh, looking just a couple of verses further in Genesis 15, verse 8, there's this beautiful human moment. There's this reminder of uh, Abram's humanity and the sort of the struggle or the paradox that we always deal with as well in our own lives. Uh, Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. His anchor was deep in the rock. He trusted God. And then he asks in verse 8, but how can I know? How can I know um, what you say is true? And this to me uh, speaks to the truth that blessed are the poor in spirit and, and, and the mourners um, and the meek and those who hunger and thirst. It's, it's just wonderful permission 
um, to doubt and to wonder and to wrestle and to be unsure and to understand that we don't have it all figured out. That's an amazing thing when we're in this beautiful place where, where we don't have it, where we don't get it, where we don't understand, but we want to. God can work with that. God loves to bless us in that place and to lift us up. That's the beginning of faith. It's like the father of that child in Mark 9 who comes to Jesus with his deaf and mute daughter. And Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, and this is one of the most beautiful lines in scripture, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's enough. That's enough for God. God heals and blesses with that line, with that heart posture. Abram believed and it was righteousness and then asks God, but how can I know? And God graciously, patiently answers. He rewards our longing doubt. He brings us to himself. It's a beautiful moment. And then, uh, from a modern standpoint, things kind of go off the rails. Um, this is what it reads, uh, verse 8. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So, it's difficult to understand what's happening here in this section, but that's simply because we didn't live uh, in that time and place. God actually doesn't even need to tell Abram what to do. Abram knows exactly what's going on here. God says, get these animals. And then Abram does the work of setting this thing up without any further instruction. He cuts them in half. He lays them out on the ground. He drives away the birds. This was clearly something that Abram intuitively got. It was something that was familiar to him. So to help us wrap our heads around this a little bit, um, how, how do we in our time, uh, ratify an agreement or, or make something official, uh, or make something clear? We sign a written contract. We put our names down on a piece of paper. If, uh, and this is true for almost all sort of important, significant social things, right? If you're getting married and you stand at the altar and you say all these wonderful things, um, and you exchange rings and you do all these things and you make these vows, um, but your spouse and your, you says, oh, husband or oh, wife, how can I know that you will do these things? Um, the sort of the, the, the most significant thing here, certainly in the terms of uh, the government's understanding of marriage, is it says, is, is we sign. We sign a document. Every marriage performed in the province of Manitoba and around the world uh, basically has this sort of very significant step, which is the signing of this document. That is what makes it official. How do I know you're going to do these things? I'll sign. I'll sign this as proof. Uh, if you enter into a business arrangement with someone, if you buy something or you take something or you sell something, um, or you uh, start up a contract or you enter into a partnership, any of these things, uh, it doesn't really mean much until you put your name on the dotted line. Uh, in fact, you can say just about whatever you want to say. You can make whatever promises you want to make. But if you don't put pen to paper, uh, legally, there are no real consequences for your actions, generally. That, of course, has limits. But by signing the contract, you commit yourself in a binding way uh, to fulfill your obligations. 
Now, Abram lived in a storytelling culture, in an oral culture, and so his way uh, of doing contracts really makes ours look uh, a little bit wimpy, looks like child's play. This is the way that it worked. <coughs> if, uh, if two people entered into an arrangement, then traditionally what they would do is take these animals, uh, cut them in two, walk between the pieces in front of witnesses, and in this way they would demonstrate or they would act out the consequences for not holding up their end of the agreement. If I do not do what I say here that I am going to do, then may I be cut off, may I be destroyed, may I be uh, killed and may my flesh lay on the ground like these animals. Um, and there are moments in the Bible that refer to this. In Jeremiah 34, uh, there's, a, there's a place where God says to Zedekiah in verse 18 uh, through Jeremiah, those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf, I will deliver into the hands of their enemies who want to kill them. Their dead bodies will become like food for the birds and the wild animals. And so Abram knew exactly what was happening here. This was a known way of, uh, of, of ratifying or making uh, agreements or contracts official. Uh, but he could never have predicted what happened next. Uh, it would have been so outside of the realm of possibility for him. In fact, it's still hard uh, even now to read this and believe uh, what happened next. What happened next is, uh, like I said earlier, maybe the clearest expression of the gospel that we find in the Bible. It's, 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 it's incredibly profound. You see, there are two main problems in our lives. I've said many times that our issues in life essentially boil down to trust. And there are actually two pieces to that trust question. So the first question is this. Uh, God, how can I know about you? How can I know about you? How can I know that you will be true to your word? And in verse 17 to 19, we see the answer. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I give this land. Uh, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God passes between the pieces and he enters into this contract with us. Uh, it's very strange imagery here. A smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appear. So what does that mean? Um, there's no real consensus, actually, about exactly what that means. But what we do know is that the words for smoke and blaze here are the same words uh, used to describe the presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai. They're the same words to describe uh, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke that led the Israelites uh, out of Egypt. The presence of God was here, and it passed through, and God is entering into this contract and he's saying, this is how you know about me, Abram. If I fail to do what I have promised, if I fail to bless you, if I fail to be your God, to bring you salvation, if I fail to use you to be a blessing, then may the impossible become possible. May I, who is all and is in all, 
somehow be cut off. May I, who am immortal, uh, suffer mortality. May I, who am all-powerful, be destroyed, uh, be dead on the ground. And that's amazing. It's almost inconceivable. Um, but it's not all. When it comes down to it, Abram probably had faith in God. Uh, he probably trusted God to come through on his end of things. Uh, Abram maybe was wondering about a much bigger, uh, much scarier question. Okay, Lord, I know all about you, but what about me? You will hold up your end. I believe you, but I will let me down. I will let you down. You will finally get tired of me. I will mess things up like Adam and Eve did, or like the people of Noah's time did, or like those of the Tower of Babel did. History is going to repeat itself again, and at some point you're going to get tired of me or frustrated with me, and you're going to say, how many times? How many times must I cover for you? How many times must I put up with your brokenness, your humanness, your laziness, your sinfulness, your selfishness, and you're going to move on? And in the end here, the incredible thing isn't just that God walked through. We always knew that God was going to hold his end of the bargain up. The incredible thing is that God walked through alone. This will have made no sense to Abram, and it should make no sense to us. This is unprecedented. In Abram's time, when a king would enter into a covenant relationship with a lesser king or servant, or if there was any kind of power imbalance of any kind, one of two things would happen. Either both of them would walk through together, or just the servant would walk through. The kings would say, if this goes to pot, if this arrangement doesn't work out, it's on your head. And Abram must have assumed that this was the way it was going, that God was going to say, all right, Abram, this is how you know. How you know I'm going to be faithful is that you're going to walk through those animals and you're going to be bound to this and you're going to be covenantally bound to me in this way and on the hook for this going through. But it doesn't go that way. God walks through alone. God is saying, I am going through for both of us. The gospel isn't a partnership. God and, our, and, and we are not pulling uh, equal weight here. In, in this moment, God covenants with his people and says, May I be cut off if I don't do my part. But Abram, may I be cut off if you don't do your part. I will bless you, even if it means I have to die. Even if it means I have to be cut off and separated. And of course, he did. Mark 15 verse 33 says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God himself separated cut off the immortal made mortal and in Isaiah 53 verse 8 we see a prophecy for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was stricken the impossible became possible God himself died was cut off was laid in the ground to fulfill the terms he set with Abram back in Genesis 15 uh, it's, it's, it's staggering to me. It had me 
crying at my desk this week as I had this moment, as these pieces fell into place, as I was hit once again with the overwhelming love of God, with what he has done um, for Abram, for the world, for you and me, what the cross uh, represents. And there isn't much left to say. What more could be said? What bigger exclamation point uh, could be put on the promise and the trustworthiness of God? Uh, The two questions we talked about are answered with finality. Can we trust God? Can we really trust God to follow through in his promises? Look at Jesus. And can we really trust ourselves? Can we ever be good enough? Can we uphold our end of the deal? That question is answered in Jesus too. The responsibility isn't ours anymore. It's his. The burden is no longer on our shoulders. It's on his shoulders. We don't have to hold it. He holds it. And he holds us. That is what it looks like to take on a burden that is light, a yoke that is easy to live in freedom. God has already done it. He's taken responsibility for both sides of the equation. All we are called to do is put our anchors in that rock, is to secure ourselves in that which can never move or change, that which can never be undone. So in the midst of storms and uncertainties, in the midst of heartache and trouble, in the midst of our own failing, we recognize that we have a God who walked through on his own and who held up his end of the bargain, even to death on a cross, What better promise from God could we have than that? Amen.